Justin McKenzie for worshiping with us today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. We're in Isaiah 42. In a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 18 as we continue our sermon series that we have entitled, A Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. If you were with us last week online, you'll remember from Isaiah 42 and verses 6 and 7, God said that he would give his servant as a light for the nations to open the eyes of those who were blind. So as we come to chapter 42 and verses 18 and 19, God is addressing the deaf and the blind. And in verse 19, he says, who is blind? And if his servant was a light to the nations and would give sight to those who were blind, who might you think would be the one who is blind here in verse 18? You might think who is blind but the nations, the one he will send his servant to be a light to and open their eyes. Yet when you look in verse 19, God says, who is blind but my servant? How could that be? Certainly the New Testament, Jesus himself com, uh, condemns the blind leading the blind. He says that's what the Pharisees are. So what's going on here in the book of Isaiah? You see, at the beginning of Isaiah 42, we're told that the servant of the Lord will succeed in the purpose that God gives the servant. But when we get to the end of Isaiah 42, God makes clear that the servant of the Lord is not successful, that the servant of the Lord fails in the task given by God. Now, this is confusing. Isaiah, uh, for some, has been very difficult to read. Some folks say Isaiah contradicts himself. Some folks see these different descriptions of the servant of the Lord and say, Isaiah, the book must have been written by more than one author. Because they speak of the servant of the Lord so differently. But if you read Isaiah carefully, you see it's not that Isaiah has two different authors. You see that it's God who has two different servants. There are two different servants of the Lord. Back in chapter 41 and verse 8, uh, very specifically and clearly, Israel is God's servant, the nation of Israel. And here in chapter 42, I'm going to read in a minute, verse 24, God gives his blind servant Jacob, he gives his blind servant Israel over to looters and plunderers. So Israel is the servant of God, the servant of the Lord here at the end of chapter 42. And Israel was God's chosen servant, his vehicle to show his glory to the nations. But the text will tell us Israel was blind to God's purpose and deaf to God's word. So Israel fails to live out its purpose. So God sent a second servant, the ideal servant, the Lord Jesus himself, who succeeds where Israel failed. So last week when we looked at the beginning of Isaiah 42, where three times we're told that the servant of the Lord will bring justice throughout the entire earth. It's looking forward to the ministry of Jesus, the ideal servant. But here at the end of Isaiah 42, we're looking at Israel who is blind and deaf. Now what difference does this make for us? I wanted us to have a clear understanding of this before I read the text. 
Because here's why it's important for us. You do understand that, that we are the people of God in this generation. That's why the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 29 tells us that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, a descendant of Abraham, Israel, right? And heirs of the covenant promises of Abraham. And that's why at the end of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul refers to the New Testament church as the Israel of God. Because we are the people of God. We are Israel. And Isaiah shows us here that if God has a purpose for his people, but they're blind to their purpose, then there are consequences. I want you to know this morning... That God has a purpose for us, and we need to know our purpose and carry it out, or there will be consequences. And it's important that we understand we are the people of God in this generation. We are the Israel of God, and I want us to see that so that we see that Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 43 applies to us. These things are true of us. So hear now God's word, beginning in Isaiah 42 in verse 18. God speaking, and he says, Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits are hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I do ask now that you would be present by your Spirit, and in the preaching of your Word, you would open eyes that are blind, that you would open ears that are deaf, that we may hear you and walk in your ways and live life as you designed it to be lived. Father, help us to see your goodness Help us to see as we sang this morning how steadfast you are to a people who are not steadfast in our faithfulness to you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see your grace and your mercy and the redemption that you have for your people. and That that would drive us to walk in your ways, to follow you, to be people after your own heart. To be people who endeavor to live life as becomes a follower of Jesus. And we ask that you'd be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher, 
For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God has a purpose for his people in this generation. And we need to know our purpose and carry it out. Or there are consequences for the world around us and for the people of God ourselves. What is our purpose? You see it there in verse 21, right? Do you see it there? We see that God gave his law to Israel, to the people of God, and that our purpose is to make God's law glorious to the world by living out God's law and showing how beautiful it is to live according to God's design. Verse 24 says clearly that Israel failed in this purpose, that the people of God did not follow his ways, did not obey his law. But where the first servant failed, the ideal servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, succeeded. As Isaiah predicts in the New Testament shows, Jesus succeeded in carrying out the purpose of God. And it's amazing to me, people are attracted to him. People are attracted to the life of Christ. Lisa and I make it a point to meet every week with folks who are not Christians. We were meeting with someone recently who specifically says, I do not profess faith, I do not have faith. Someone who's been burned by the church. And, and we were reading portions of the New Testament with them, and this person said to us, you know, I'm really struck by Jesus where he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. He, he said, I was really moved when Jesus said, you know, what good is it if you just love people who love you? Everybody does that. But to love your enemy, to pray for people who persecute you. This person said, that, that's what the, our country really needs right now. That's what our, our culture really needs right now. This is someone who doesn't profess faith. Somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, but they're drawn to the life of Christ. And it's our purpose as the people of God to live life under God's rule in a way that we are so Christ-like. That we are so compellingly beautiful in the way that we relate to one another. That people are drawn to the Lord Jesus. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, that same passage where he tells us to love our enemies. You remember what he says? Jeremy Terry prayed it for us last week in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 13. Jesus says to his people, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Jesus is saying we should be different from the world around us. Adding seasoning, preserving the culture in which we find ourselves. Verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You do see that's not a New Testament concept, right? <laughs> We've already seen in Isaiah 42 that the servant of the Lord is to be the light of the nations. Jesus is saying that this is what your job is as a follower of Christ. Jesus said, you are, a light, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. God has a purpose for us. 
And our purpose is to live life under God's rule in a way that is so Christ-like, that is so compellingly beautiful that people are drawn to Christ. Recently in a meeting I was in with, with Will Trapp, I see him here, and he did the opening devotion. And we looked at John 17 where Jesus prays for the unity of his followers. And he says something really interesting. He said, he said Lord, make us one so that the world would know you sent me. That's crazy. That the world would know that God has come into the world because there's this different group of people that have a unity that can't be explained any other way than that God is in their midst and indwells them and empowers them to live in that unity. Oh, there's a compellingly beautiful way of life that people are drawn to as we are more and more Christ-like. So let me just ask you. Are you committed to being more Christ-like? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you endeavor, do you strive to become more and more like Jesus? People who don't even profess faith say, that's what our nation needs. That's what our culture needs. I would say that's what the church needs. It's what we long for. It's the longing of our hearts. And how does that happen? We have to read about him. We have to know what Jesus was like in order to be Christ-like. And as we begin to read the word together and we read the New Testament, you will see that there is a process that Jesus typically used for people to become more Christ-like. Some people call it discipleship. Some people call it intentional mentoring. There are a lot of words for it. But it, but it looks like people who have a relationship with Jesus... Walking with him in community with other people who have a relationship with Jesus, sharing their lives together. And in that process, God uses it to make us more like Christ. Here at Redeemer Church, we've been very intentional about setting out a clear and accessible path for people to become more Christ-like, to learn to walk with him more closely and I want you to know that during quarantine, your leadership has not been at rest, and we are continuing to work on how we can make that path more clear, more accessible. You're going to hear that our new members class is totally different. We'll invite you to go through it, even if you're a member, so that you can hear more clearly what that path is and what changes we've made. There'll be other classes, but all of it has the goal of helping us to become more like Jesus, so be watching for those things. In verse 23, God calls us to pay attention to this. Are we paying attention? Verse 23 says, which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Do you hear what the word is saying to us, the people of God in this generation? God's saying that even when the discipline of God unleashes his burning anger in the form of violence, and he even mentioned specifically looting in the text, it's amazing how a 27-year-old text seems so relevant and contemporary to us. But God is saying that even when he disciplines us, even as we walk through fiery trials, that even then we don't always feel the flame enough to take God's word into our hearts. You see that at the end it, it consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And it tends to be our response that when we're in hard times, we blame God for not caring for us. As if he is absent or aloof 
or apathetic. But that's not the cause of our trials. The cause is that our lives bear little resemblance to Christ, so we bear little relation to God's purpose for us. And that's why Israel was carried off into exile in Babylon, and it's why many churches today go into what some commentators have called institutional exile, making no difference in the culture around us. That's the cause of our trials. We don't live out the purpose God has for us. We need revival in our hearts. We need revival in our churches. How does that happen? What is God's solution to this problem? What is God's remedy? Isaiah 43. Can I just say as we turn here, it begins, but now. It's an adversative. It's contrasting what has gone on before. And if you didn't hear, if you wonder, why didn't he in Isaiah 43 this week? Because if you don't understand what came just before this, you don't understand Isaiah 43. And I'm so excited to preach this good news to real people. I'm tired of preaching to a camera. I'm so glad that you're here. And those of you who are online, I'm so glad that you joined us again today. But I feel an energy with people here that I don't normally feel. I don't know if it's the breeze or the blowing in of the spirit, but God is on the move. And I want you to hear Isaiah 43 very clearly. He says, but now, you see there's an abrupt transition from our problem to God's remedy. In these first five verses, you're going to hear God refer to Jacob and to Israel. And you need to understand that this Jacob and this Israel that he's talking about here are the same ones that are carried off into exile before. They're the same ones that he handed over to looters in verse 24 that were enveloped in the flames of violence in verse 25 that we just read. And so the but now in Isaiah 43 does not signal a change in the people of God. It is a declaration of the grace of God. You see, if you'll remember the context... For 39 chapters, Isaiah writes about how people are not living according to the way God designed his people to live. And so God says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're going to come and ransack everything and carry you off into exile. And you'll be there for 60 or 70 years, but even then, I'm going to raise up Cyrus the Persian to free you and bring you back. God's showing his grace, his mercy. The people haven't even repented yet. They haven't even confessed that they did anything wrong. And he's already talking about his comfort in Isaiah 40. He's already talking about his servant in Isaiah 42. He's already talking about his grace here in Isaiah 43. And and, and I want you to understand that. Listen, God was not waiting on them to get it together before he promises to redeem them. God didn't wait on them to get over their addictions or to get out of depression or to rid themselves of their sin before he would love them. That's the nature of God. It's the nature of grace that God is willing to love the undeserving. That's the whole point of grace. Love for those who don't deserve it. Hear the grace of God, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 5. But now... This is what the Lord says, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. We love Isaiah 43, and we should. Don't hear it apart from Isaiah 42. We need to hear that if we do not turn from our own ways, and we do not walk in the ways of God, God will put us through floods and fires and flame. But, as Mackenzie talked about earlier, he is so steadfast to his people who are not steadfast in their faithfulness to him that even in the midst of that, he tells us not to be afraid, not to fear. Why? Why does he say, why are we afraid and why should we not be afraid? You can answer that question. You live in uncertain times. We're afraid because there's all this stuff going on around us. And it's scary stuff. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. And on some level, we fear it means that God has forsaken us and that we're totally lost. Or that God has not forsaken us, that he's giving us justice, that we're treating us as, he's treating us as we deserve to be treated. But in Isaiah 43, verse 1, he says, Fear not, because I have redeemed you. He hasn't redeemed them yet. He talks in the past tense because as far as God is concerned, it's as good as done. What would this idea of redemption mean? We have an idea. We sang about before the throne of God, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. That's redemption. And we think about it on this side of the cross, and, and that's appropriate for us. But even these folks in the Old Testament, what would their notion of redemption be? If you read in Exodus or Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you'll see that the people of God, if they got into debt, they could be taken on as slaves because they couldn't pay that debt off. If they committed a crime and couldn't pay the restitution to make things right, you became enslaved. But this idea of redemption meant that a family member or a friend paid the debt that you owed to deliver you from your slavery. It means payment of our debt by another so that we can be free. And if God has redeemed us, that means our hard times will not last forever. That there is an end to this suffering. It means that we can have a certain hope in uncertain times. I want to be very clear about something. I've called you to be more committed to being more Christ-like if you are part of the people of God. And I think that's appropriate. Isaiah 42, that is clearly what the God is calling his people to do through his prophet. So that's an appropriate thing for us to say, and we need to hear that. But I also want you to hear what God says here in Isaiah 43. He's saying that that commitment to God, that our commitment to him, must be based on God's commitment to us. That's what empowers us. That's what motivates us. 
Seeing his steadfastness to us is what helps us to keep turning back to him when we're not steadfast in our faithfulness to him. Do you see his commitment to his people here? Look, look what he says in verse, in verse 1. He created us, formed us, he's redeemed us, he has called us by our name. We're his, he is with us, he is our savior. We are precious and honored in his sight. He gives up other people in exchange for us because he loves us. What God is saying is that what matters most about us is not what we have or what we have not done. It's not what we deserve. But what matters most is whose we are. God's discipline is real. But as we'll sing in just a moment, his mercy is more. For the people of God, the most important thing about us, what should define us the most, is not the color of our skin, not our gender, not if we're single or married, not our social status, not whether we have money or we don't have money or social standing or prestige. What should define us most is that we are sinful people who fall short of the glory of God, but are redeemed by the grace of God. That should be bigger for us than anything else. And when we own that, when we believe that, when that's our identity, it's easier to have unity. I'm a little more gracious with you when I see how gracious my God has been with me. So listen, as we face uncertain times, and we certainly do, don't believe the lie that God is absent or aloof or apathetic when we go through these difficult times. Believe the truth that God is using our hard times to make us into the people that he wants us to be. That's what Isaiah is saying here. We read it in the New Testament as well. I think it's appropriate to read Hebrews chapter 12 on Father's Day, a good thing for us to hear. That God is using difficult things for our good. What does Hebrews 12 say? Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more? Should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they saw best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Thank you, Bible, for being so real and honest. No discipline seems comfortable at the time. No, it doesn't. It stinks. It's not pleasant. It's painful. Keep reading. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So in the midst of difficulty, rejoice that it means we are children of God. And that he's using these difficulties for our good. That's what Isaiah says here in Isaiah 43, that God is ordering all things for our good. Verse 4, he gives people in exchange for our life. Verse 3, he specifically mentions that he saved Israel at Egypt's expense. 
he's predicting that he's going to give the Babylonians into the hands of Cyrus the Persian to release his people from exile. We'll see when we get to Isaiah 53 that God is willing to crush his ideal servant in order to bring peace and healing to his sheep who have gone astray. God wants what's best for us as he defines best. So in the midst of our messiness, do not lose sight of his love and his care for us. Don't forget that he's orchestrating all of human history to benefit his blind, deaf people because we are precious to him, honored in his sight, and because he loves us. Not because we are good, but because he is good. We're created, we're formed, we're redeemed, we're preserved to be a billboard, an ad, a living monument to how good God is to people who don't deserve it, to people who deserve the opposite. He saves us despite what we deserve so that other people see his glory and his goodness and his grace and they are drawn to him. That's how revival comes. You want to see a nation change? You want to see community change? That's how it happens. And if that is true, then just a few things for us to think about. Takeaways. What, what difference does this make for us? Going forward, what difference does this make? Number one, I would ask, where is our humility and our constant confession of our sin as we realize and lament over the fact that we're verse 20? We have seen many things but have paid no attention that our ears are open, but we don't seem to hear very much. There should be a humility that comes from our constant confession and repentance of turning back to God. Where is our humility and our brokenness? Second, I would ask, where is our praise of him who is so faithful to his unfaithful people? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us that we are a chosen people that we're a royal priesthood, that we're a holy nation. That means we are a group of people set apart. Why? So that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Where is our praise of him who is so faithful to his unfaithful people? One other question. Where's our pursuit of Christ's likeness? Not so we feel better about ourselves or so we can claim to be better than other people, but so that others would be drawn to Jesus as they see how beautiful it is to live according to his design. We are far too much like the culture around us and not nearly enough like the Savior who bought us. The first step to becoming more like him is remembering whose we are is remembering his commitment to us, which enables and empowers us to commit ourselves to him. Let's pray that we see that clearly, that we hear it, and that we live out that truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please open up ears that are deaf and eyes that cannot see. I pray that you would give us a humility that comes from seeing we don't walk in your ways as we should. Lead us to great praise as we see your goodness and your faithfulness to people who don't deserve it. Give us a heart for the people around us that we would long for them to come 
to know you because walking in your ways is so good and sweet, even in the midst of hard times. Father, even when we forget, I pray that you would remember your promises and that you would continue to use all things for our good, that we may look more and more like Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Just stand with